This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Today we have clinical associate professor, University of Florida, PhD in pharmaceutical sciences, uh, master's in forensic toxicology, and Kratom expert, Dr. Oliver Grunman. So it's an interesting way how I got involved with Kratom. And in 2015, one of my graduate students, one of my master's students who works in the forensic field with a, with a forensic toxicology lab down in South Florida, um, submitted a paper as part of, of one of the courses uh, we were taking or he was taking with me. Um, and he mentioned uh, Kratom back then uh, in his paper uh, because it was involved in a, uh, in a fatal car accident of a relatively young person. And that's how I, it first actually appeared to me. That's how I first heard about uh, Kratom. And uh, from there, it just uh, developed into uh, kind of a, an interest of mine. Uh, we wrote uh, the first review that was published in the International Journal of Legal Medicine uh, together with another student who also was interested in, in Kratom. And, and then from there, I became interested from the perspective of who is actually taking Kratom in the United States, because we didn't really know and understand well who is the consumer, who is using Kratom for which, for what reasons. And uh, that led me to uh, come up with a, with a survey uh, that garnered a lot of interest uh, and, and uh, yielded a lot of good results. So what do you know, what did you learn from that survey about who uses Kratom and, and why they use it? Yeah, so it, it was, there are certain limitations to anonymous self-reporting of, uh, of uh, health and um, in general uh, drug use or substance use uh, if we, if we uh, open up a little bit more about uh, ourselves, uh, there tends to be either a, a slightly biased reporting, but um, nonetheless, uh, I think that the data overall uh, represented quite well the kind of current snapshot of users. Um, and we kind of asked for, we categorized intentionally for uses of Kratom. Uh, one was for uh, those who used Kratom uh, for an illicit uh, drug use for, for self-treatment of illicit drug use in regards mm. to preventing uh, withdrawal symptoms or the treatment of withdrawal symptoms related to illicit drug use. If that's an mm. opioid, if that's a stimulant, if that's uh, anything else, a benzodiazepine, a barbiturate, or like. Then we had the second category if somebody was using a prescription drug and was misusing or abusing it. Um, we looked at, at that if somebody had withdrawal symptoms or was trying to um, basically substitute Kratom for that prescription drug. Um, then we had a third category if somebody self treated acute or chronic pain and used uh, Kratom to do so. Or if somebody, uh, that was the last category, was using Kratom for a mental or emotional condition, such as depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorders, um, or even something like um, ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. Uh, so those were the four broad categories which we were inquiring about. Okay, and, and I have a quote from, um, this is from the survey analysis. It said, those taking uh, Kratom for an illicit drug dependency reported the best overall health with 74.9% 
reporting good or very good health. Um, does this suggest uh, Kratom might be like a harm reduction tool? So that's this has been proposed not only by by our findings, but also by other uh, smaller surveys or even just case reports. Uh, uh, so Kirsten Smith, uh, who has done that um, as part of her uh, uh, doctoral studies and now also where she's working for uh, NIDA in her role as a postdoctoral fellow with NIDA, um, has done some, some investigations. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting to see how people do not prefer to take Kratom uh, as a as an agent to get high, uh, mm. basically to say, uh, I, I don't have currently access to heroin or I have access to hydrocodone or another drug that uh, one used to get high on, but rather to use it as a, as a mitigation tool, as you said, to uh, harm reduction tool as, as a tool to, as, as a, as a, as a way to uh, get off of a drug or to prevent withdrawal symptoms. So similar to what we use in harm reduction therapy or in long-term treatment of opioid um, substance use disorders, we use buprenorphine or we use methadone. Mm -hmm. Kratom may be similar to this. Now we haven't conducted any clinical trials because that faces hurdles by the regulatory agencies, particularly FDA. Um, so we cannot tell how effective it would be compared to buprenorphine or methadone, but there seems to be some indication that it helps a certain group of people at least to uh, overcome some of the, the withdrawal symptoms and to help them actually to get off of some of the opioids that they have been previously using, and not only opioids, but also some other stimulant drugs such as methamphetamine, for example. You talk a lot about Kratom being uh, act acting on the opioid receptors, but it appears as though from um, this study that Kratom also acts on other uh, brain receptors um, that, that involves uh, dopamine, serotonin. Um, what did you find in that study um, that shows that Kratom could also be used as an alternative to uh, maybe antidepressants or antipsychotics? Yeah, so uh, whenever we conduct surveys, it's hard to kind of distinguish exactly what the mechanism of action is, right? So mm -hmm. we basically just ask folks, hey, what benefits did you see with the use? And in, in this particular survey, we also asked what potential detriments or what potential uh, adverse effects did you observe or did you experience with the use of, of Kratom? So um, we cannot necessarily narrow it down to what particular receptors or what particular okay. neurotransmitters were involved. Um, but we can link kind of the effects, both the beneficial and some of the adverse effects to, um, to either associate them with animal studies that have been conducted, both with Kratom and with the isolated agents, mitragynin, 7-hydroxymitragynin, uh, or we can, by extension, say if Kratom, even if taken in higher amounts and higher doses, does not lead to a particular set of adverse effects or beneficial effects as do classical opioids, classical opioids being heroin, uh, being oxycodone, uh, being hydrocodone, uh, being morphine, that there is something that is different in Kratom uh, that distinguishes it from the classical opioids in its mechanism of action. But we cannot narrow it down in particular uh, to a particular receptor system or neurotransmitter. 
And is that just because there haven't been clinical studies, or do the animal studies show us anything about how that works? Yeah, so there have been animal studies conducted, and mm-hmm. uh, as you indicated in your in your Journal Club review of that of that review that we that we published on the potential use of of kratom and its uh, and its active ingredients, its proposed active ingredients, mitragynin, seven hydroxymitragynin. Um, there, there is more to it than just its opioid effects. Um, and, and more to it means that some animal studies have investigated not only its effects on opioid receptors, but also its effects on other systems, on other neurotransmitters. You already mentioned dopamine. Uh, mm. There is some activity at adrenergic receptors um, that have been studied for mitragynin itself. Um, so one aspect is I think that at the moment, much focus is being placed on mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin mm-hmm. as the active ingredients in, in kratom. Uh, but kratom overall, when we look at the whole uh, leaf, uh, the powdered leaf, which is primarily what is being consumed, um, there are hundreds of different compounds in it, not only the alkaloids, which mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin belong to, but also a range of other compounds uh, that mm-hmm. are not alkaloids. Um, and I think there is, we know from the literature that some of these other non-alkaloid compounds may contribute to the range, to the full spectrum of effects that kratom may exert. And we haven't yet explored any of these compounds and their potential contribution to the effects that kratom shows on the user. Have you found much recreational use of of kratom anywhere? I know maybe it was, I think in Southeast Asia, there's a certain cocktail that's used recreationally um, by young people there. But as far as I can tell with comments on our site, and it seems like everybody's either using it for pain, for, um, you know, uh, uh, cessation of other drugs, withdrawal, um, some kind of mental health issue. Is there, have you seen in your, in your surveys uh, a lot of uh, use that would be considered recreational, whatever that means? So, uh Kratom by itself, when we look at the, at the leaf, uh, the powdered leaf, and I intentionally don't want to use the word extract because extract implies that you use basically a solvent to extract certain compounds to enrich basically um, certain uh, compounds, certain substances from the leaf and get rid of certain other compounds. That's what an extract means. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is often done for herbal supplements. Uh, Often we we have extracts uh, to enrich certain compounds because they are considered the active principles. Uh, We see that for St. John's word, for example. We see that for for, uh, other passion flower or whatever we call them extracts because we often use... um, uh, something like alcohol or something alike to enrich these compounds, uh, which we don't see for kratom at the moment. We have specialized extracts sometimes that are being sold either in liquid or in, in, in kind of a powdered form. But primarily what we see still being used is just basically the ground up leaf. Uh, yeah. It's dried and it's ground up uh, in, into a powder and people are ingesting it uh, in in various doses. Um, So what we do not see is that somebody tries to inject um, the the ground, the the powder, that somebody tries to um, really 
smoke uh, the the leaf. Sometimes you can buy just loose leaf material that is kind of almost like a tea, you know, mm-hmm. um, like to make a tea out of it. Um, uh, we don't see that. Uh, so that indicates from a from a perspective of somebody who is concerned about addiction um, that there is not a drive to really increase the delivery and uh, get it into the central nervous system or into the bloodstream much faster uh, mm-hmm. because basically bypassing the uh, the oral route of administration, uh, when we talk about ingesting it, it goes through the stomach, it has to go through the intestine, it has to be, from there, it has to first go through the liver before it actually mm-hmm. goes into the bloodstream. And that has shown to be a very inefficient way to deliver mitragynin, for example. Mm. Uh, so there isn't much that gets into the bloodstream that way, about 3% of the mitragynin that is present in the powder actually gets into the bloodstream. So if folks were really interested in abusing, using it for recreational purposes to get high, they would try to um, try to find ways to circumvent the liver, circumvent um, uh, the uh, the oral route, basically smoke it. Uh, try to find other ways to uh, to get the mitragynin into the central nervous system. And we don't see that happening. Then that gets me into um, the toxicity of, of uh, Kratom. Um, there was a report done by uh, Eggleston. Um, it was called Kratom Use and Toxicities in the United States in uh, Pharmacotherapy. Uh, he reported that uh, he used kratom exposures reported to the National Poison Data System and also County Medical Examiner's Office records. Um, you uh, wrote, along with a, f- a few others, um, you wrote a critique of that. Um, and what what do you think, why do you think this report needed a critique uh, measuring toxicities from poison control and uh, medical examiners? And you also have a background of forensics, so I was interested particularly in your opinion about this. So what has evolved over recent years is uh, we are tracking kind of what the FDA and other agencies um is tracking is basically the severe uh, and also the the deaths, the severe effects or severe uh, requiring hospital uh, admissions and also the deaths associated with kratom exposures. Now, um, I, I've had discussions, ongoing discussions with uh, folks uh, that are conducting research are involved in the sphere of, of conducting research um, on, on Kratom. And when you look closer into these cases that are labeled as being associated uh, with Kratom, um, what often emerges or what emerges as a theme is that these are not Kratom only exposures. Mm-hmm. So they are polydrug exposures, so meaning that more than just kratom is involved. Uh, It might be alcohol, it might be benzodiazepines, it might be another opioid is involved. And I I think we can all agree that kratom is not innocuous. It's not to be taken like chocolate. Mm -hmm. It's it's not like gummy bears. Um, It is definitely something that has pharmacological effects. And it should be treated as such. Um, So somebody who takes Kratom uh, should take it responsibly uh, for themselves. uh, And especially if um, they are caretakers for others. Um, So there is a a certain uh, manageable risk associated with taking Kratom, especially if somebody has an underlying health disorder and is taking another medication for it. Um, so in that regard, I, 
I do advocate that somebody who wants to take kratom for the self-treatment of uh, a pre-existing health condition and is already on medication should consult with a healthcare provider, should consult with their physician or with their pharmacist mm -hmm. or with a nurse practitioner because there is a potential for drug interactions. Yeah. Um, the problem that we're facing at the moment is that we do not know a lot about Kratom and many healthcare providers are not well educated about Kratom. Uh, and some treat it just as a supplement uh, and might just discourage uh, any and all use of it. And to many Kratom users, uh, that is just basically a sign uh, that they do not want to disclose its use, understandably so, because there's basically a, uh, a disinterest of engaging with, with the user, with, with the patient in this case. And um, if that is not addressed in a, in a reasonable manner, um, then I understand that, that patients, that Kratom users do not want to disclose that use. Uh, there's a stigma associated with it as well. Uh, mm -hmm. You might be seen as a, as a drug user, basically, because you're using Kratom, which I think uh, is also uh, a very wrong approach. And it is being in part perpetuated by the FDA, by regulatory agencies, um, which doesn't help either because people who are using Kratom at the moment for self-treatment of pain are afraid to, to lose access to Kratom mm -hmm. um, because then they might have only the other option of taking opioids. And yeah. either they have been, um, they have developed a dependence on opioids before and have managed to, uh, to, uh, to, to get rid of that um, dependence or they, they are afraid to develop a dependence in the first place. So I do understand that people are hesitant to disclose the use of Kratom, but it is important uh, to at least consult with a healthcare provider. And if you have a healthcare provider that is not open to discussing the use, then I would go to another healthcare provider and uh, until you find somebody that is open to, to discuss it with you um, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful and uh, and welcoming manner, because there is a way to, to integrate Kratom into therapy. Um, when it comes to the Eggleston um, paper, um, my discussions uh, that have uh, looked at uh, different cases of Kratom, like I said, polydrug use. Um, so attributing causation to the role of Kratom in either the um, adverse effects, the severity of the adverse effects, or saying that Kratom was causatively linked in the death of a person, if other compounds were present, cannot be established at this point. Uh, because once you have a benzodiazepine, another opioid present, then we, we simply cannot reach the conclusion that Kratom was the one compound that was um, causative uh, in, in the fatality uh, because of the presence of other compounds that uh, could just as likely have contributed to the fatality. I mean, we, we and, you know, it just seems like all the deaths involve poly drug use that are considered kratom alone deaths do we even know you know the lethal dose of mitragynine in humans or is there another something else that could possibly be taken that contributes to like a kratom alone toxicity so that that's that's the problem so for, for i have to admit that for many compounds for many substances we do not have a human lethal dose because mm. obviously it's unethical uh, yeah. to conduct <laughs> uh, conduct any uh, trials that would establish a, a lethal dose. Yeah. What we have sometimes from uh, 
from extended uh, reports over years, sometimes over decades, is that we can say uh, with a certain degree of, of, uh, of certainty, basically, that if you reach a certain dose, you are quite likely that you will die from that particular dose or from that particular blood concentration. Now, the, the trouble with Kratom, and that was actually the title of a publication earlier this year by Papsun et al., uh, is that the range of reported concentrations of mitragynin in blood samples, both involving people who were intoxicated, so where, for example, a driving under the influence was determined where mitragynin was found, and also mm -hmm. uh, post-mortem, so fatalities uh, where mitragynin was determined, was all over the place. So mm -hmm. in some cases, it was as low as 50 nanograms per milliliter mitragynin. And in other cases, it was as high as over 10,000 nanograms per milliliter. Mm. Um, so we, we certainly cannot establish a, uh, what we call an LD50, a lethal dose where 50% of a population that is exposed to um, the drug is basically dying from the exposure. Mm. Uh, from that particular dose. We cannot establish that in humans. Yeah. And interestingly enough, we do not have an LD50 for mitragynin in animals yet, at least not in rodents, which are commonly yeah. used to establish an LD50, uh, at least not for acute exposure to mitragynin. Yeah, and it seems as though, because I was looking at some of those where they tried to establish an LD50, and the, the one was, you know, estimated to be about five 550 milligrams per kilogram, and I kind of, like, tried to convert that into what would the human equivalent dose be, and that would be, like, you know, on in an average, uh, average batch of Kratom, that would be, like, eating a whole kilo in one sitting, so it doesn't seem like we have really good information there. Um, but how do these coroners, when they when they um, when they label a death a kratom uh, caused death, what what mistakes are they making there? Is it just because they don't don't have any other answers and they don't know what this kratom is? That's a good question. I uh, cannot speak for a coroner or uh, for a medical examiner yeah. or who conducts the autopsy in every single instance. Um, I, I think sometimes it's uh, it's an exclusion uh, uh, diagnosis, basically, um, that because they cannot find anything else in a drug screen uh, or uh, that everything else seems to be fairly normal um, mm -hmm. and they cannot find any other indications uh, that could have caused the death uh, other than the mitragynin, uh, they then conclude that it has to be the mitragynin uh, or the quatrum. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say that that is unusual because of the way that quatrum is currently being viewed uh, because there are compounds in quatrum that uh, can and interact with opioid receptors uh, that it may impair uh, your ability to operate a vehicle. Uh, so for example, if uh, death occurs while operating a vehicle, uh, if it's a fatal accident, for example, mm -hmm. then there is a, a there, there could be a reasonable assumption that somebody lost control over the vehicle. And yeah, that mm -hmm. basically uh, Kratom was involved in that. Right, so yeah. um, it's it's a, it's a complicated issue, and sometimes we left with an exclusion diagnosis, basically, and all that there is is mitragynin in the blood. I believe it's maybe the same um, report that your your uh, student worked on. Uh, it was a man in uh, Pennsylvania, a young man who who died in a car accident. Um, his parents ended up suing a kratom company, um, and the 
coroner was actually, uh, there was a journalist, Nick Wing, who tried to get the toxicology reports from the medical examiner, and it was um, listed as acute mitragenine toxicity as the cause of his death. Um, but, you know, he actually died in a car accident. Um, I, I'm not sure if you have any opinion about that, but the coroner actually fought to keep those reports hidden, and, and it just seems like there's something suspicious going on there. But um, I don't know what... what uh, There might be something with medical examiners where they don't want to release uh, information, but it seems as though there's... Uh, that kind of gets to the question of, you said the FDA is is presenting hurdles to research is there is are those hurdles mainly political or is it is it a result of maybe research that other research um that they're promoting that kind of shows maybe the you know the worst parts of kratom or or maybe some negative uh, reports that the fda wants to promote um well, the huh, the intentions of a regulatory agency are sometimes remain a little bit uh, opaque. I, I would say um, the FDA has been um, has been very um, has been uh, they have been very vocal about the opposition to kratom yeah. um, for years now. Um, and they haven't really let up, at least they haven't reversed their course, even with the transition to a new commissioner. Um, when when uh, Dr. Gottlieb uh, stepped down or when a new commissioner was appointed. Mm -hmm. um, but the DEA has not followed through with the eight factor analysis recommendation or the conclusions that the FDA reached based on their eight factor analysis. Uh, which is still not completely um, publicly known what the actual eight-factor analysis uh, is. Uh, not all pages are publicly available. Um, when it comes to regulatory agencies in general, uh, I think their mission to protect public health is, is on the forefront. And I can understand in part that when they hear the word opioid receptor and act on or bind interact with the opioid receptor that they that some red lights go on mm -hmm. for them um and especially if it's then a uh, you know potentially touted as a dietary supplement uh, that they uh, see another potential source of an opioid emerging uh, amidst a, an, a really an, an opioid pandemic um, and not using the word opioid pandemic lightly here, but we really have a, a, uh, a severe opioid uh, substance use disorder problem uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's ravaging through communities, mm -hmm. um, has been done so for, for years. And the, reaction on uh, state and, and the federal level has been a little bit sluggish, um, to say the least. Uh, so the FDA may have overreacted uh, and they stay their course uh, because they cannot necessarily place, try to, to provide a a middle ground for for kratom in terms of scheduling action. Um, it's a it's a dietary supplement or herbal supplement. Um, so the the only thing that they can really do is to basically say uh, we 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 recommend placing it in Schedule One for now. Um, what has been done by states uh, taking their own actions is basically to say we want products on the market that consumers can rely on in terms of quality, we want them labeled uh, accurately uh, so that consumers know what they get when they buy it. Um, and they need to be basically a limitation on how much mitragynin uh, and, and thereby also 7-hydroxymitragynin is contained in these products and that they're not adulterated. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I think that is essential. I would potentially go a step further and say that you need to talk to a healthcare provider uh, before you can access these products because it is important that you are aware of the potential drug interactions that are associated with the use of, of Kratom. Mm -hmm. That would be my, my thing that I would potentially add to it. But uh, I, I can understand the, the FDA being concerned about it. But when you look at the science, what the science has been reporting and all the, the facts that have been emerging over the years, it is clear that kratom, mitragynin, 7-hydroxymitragynin so far are not the same. You cannot categorize mitragynin as being the exact same as a classical opioid receptor full agonist like fentanyl, like heroin, like morphine. And I think that is something that the FDA continues to ignore in their considerations. Why would it be difficult for scientists to study a controlled substance? So uh, I, <laughs> I like to compare it as I'm sure others have done <laughs> before me uh, to the whole issue with marijuana uh, research. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we, we still face significant hurdles in obtaining marijuana, or if we look at many of the other uh, psychoactive substances, uh, if we talk about psilocybin, if we talk about MDMA, um, LSD, uh, for research purposes, uh, the hoops and hurdles one has to step over, jump through in order to get these products uh, for uh, preclinical, so animal studies, in vitro studies on, on cells, and then even higher, so obviously, if you want to actually study them in humans, is significant. Um, for marijuana, because that's the closest comparison when we talk about a natural product, when we talk about a plant that you need to have, uh, we only have one facility in the United States that is federally approved to grow marijuana, and that's at the University of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, and the marijuana that is grown there is not of, not close to the quality of uh, commercial marijuana products that are available yeah. in Colorado, Washington, or other states that uh, allow medical or recreational marijuana. Yeah. Uh, so what we currently study in, in the limited clinical trials on marijuana is not up to date of what is available uh, on, on the market. So what people can actually purchase and use in therapy at the moment. Uh, so we, are, we have a disconnect. Uh, and if we now schedule Kratom through scheduling mitragynin, 7-hydroxymitragynin, would basically set us back to the beginnings of marijuana. It would take mm. us years to get even to the point where marijuana is at at the moment. Um, I, I don't know if states could maintain their independence in where they're at right now with their scheduling activities. I, I don't know if, yeah. if the federal uh, scheduling activity would initially... I, I have to admit, I'm not that uh, savvy when it comes to the, the federaling, federal scheduling, if that would initially overrule and then yeah. would put everything back. I, I don't know. Um, so you have to jump through all of these hurdles to even get to it. Uh, and it would just be a huge, and obviously we wouldn't have access to the Kratom users that are currently using. Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't be able to, actually study how people are using it now, what, what the behavior is, who's using it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it would, the, the access for, for Quantum users would be, uh, that's, that's the yeah. other thing, obviously, that Quantum users would not have access to it any longer. And we're yeah. talking about um, millions of Quantum users in the United States. And you recently did a study on uh, toxic metals and salmonella present in uh, kratom, and it—I mean, if it was an underground 
sold on the illegal market, you wouldn't even be able to measure these things as it is now. Um, you found a lot of levels of uh, toxic metals and kratom available um, in the western sub suburbs of Chicago. Um, we've had uh, kratom contaminated with salmonella, and then we've also had like food. So how, how does uh, kratom become infected with salmonella? So regarding the, the kind of supply chain of uh, products, uh, because Kratom is currently not regulated, um, there's really no incentive for um, not, no direct, well, I'm not saying no incentive because you could lose your, your, your Kratom users yeah. uh, if, you, if you put out a product that is uh, contaminated. And, um, mm -hmm. But initially, uh, there's obviously a risk to those who are purchasing it and then get sick from it. Um, you have that upfront risk, basically. Um, and uh, the FDA regulates food and regulates... Uh, supplements uh, that are recognized as such uh, to adhere to certain microbial contamination standards. Uh, and that goes throughout the, the supply chain. So it starts at the source uh, and then you go through the different steps where you have microbial monitoring up to the end product. That doesn't happen uh, currently with um, uh, with Kratom. So often it is if the leaves are not dried properly, uh, if mold can grow on them, if they're in, a, uh, in, a, in an environment where uh, mold is allowed to grow. So if the, if the leaves are kept uh, and they, they can't grow, they can't uh, dry fully, uh, mm. and then you kind of get mold growth, you get kind of bacterial growth, and that's how the spores are then introduced, basically. And that's when you have contamination with potentially salmonella as well. Um, and that can be introduced at, at various stages. Usually it happens at the drying stage. Um, mm -hmm. So relatively early on. And there's just no way of, of telling that unless you actually test the product for microbial contamination. Yeah, and I've also heard that... The that, you know, it's dried outdoors and then, you know, like certain animals could walk over it and leave droppings and that can be contaminated that way. And the other was the uh, presence of uh, toxic metals, which you actually found in those samples. You think it might be from uh, the old machines uh, used in grinding the kratom into powder, but um, also uh, it mentions that there are um, metals present in the soil from volcanic uh, soil there in Indonesia. Um, if the metals are coming naturally from the soil, is there really any way to ensure the safety of kratom from Indonesia? In our discussion, we were a little bit speculating about where the contamination came from yeah. because we don't have soil samples to match it. Okay. Um, so to be honest, um, we don't know to what degree uh, that comes from uh, mining runoff, for example, because oh, okay. kratom trees are known to grow close to um, freshwater, you know, to, to little streams or anything like that. Uh, so it could be runoff from mining. It could mm. be uh, indeed... Uh, from volcanic, uh, 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 so the so directly in the soil from volcanic um, uh, soil, um, or it could be from the grinding process. Mm -hmm. um, so we we were speculating there, to be honest. So we would have to actually go and get soil samples to see if this is from the soil, if it's introduced through the grinding process, from the manufacturing process, from the uh, from processing the leaves or where it is introduced to then conclude if there are measures that can be taken to avoid heavy metal introduction during the processing, or if it is indeed directly in the leaves and uh, we need to find other ways to get rid of the heavy metals. Okay. And, and there was another concern about, um, not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. It was uh, a scene to Bacter uh, mm -hmm. in the loose leaf material. What is that, and and is it dangerous? 
So naturally, if you have leaf material, if you have any uh, plant material, you will always find some degree of bacteria and uh, fungi or stuff like that uh, on it. It's just because it's plant, you know, uh, there is, it's, it's just natural. Uh, when we eat uh, our food, uh, you will not get rid of all of the, all of the bacteria that naturally are just present. You know, if you take a carrot out of the earth, um, out of the ground, you wash it, but that doesn't get rid of all of the bacteria that mm -hmm. are naturally in the ground, in the soil. Um, so some contamination with bacteria is always expected. It will always be present. Um, when these bacteria reach a certain level, there is a, a small risk that, for example, an imbalance in uh, the gastrointestinal bacteria may occur. So the, the risk with Sinephibacter uh, is that you might get diarrhea uh, potentially uh, mm -hmm. on, um, for a little while. Uh, for, so that's for an, a, a, an otherwise healthy person. Yeah. Uh, the risk is a little bit higher for people that have uh, are immunocompromised. So, for example, somebody who has Crohn's disease or something that has an immunocompromised uh, intestinal barrier, for example, uh, that tend to have uh, inflammation in gastrointestinal or intestinal inflammation uh, that can then lead to a stronger immune response. So that's when we get into specific populations that might be more vulnerable to have a stronger immune response and might have a flare up of their intestinal condition. Um, and those people are in general more prone to developing um, uh, inflammation or uh, have a, a reaction to uh, most uh, uh, most uh, most uh, ingested food items that cannot be cooked. So, what okay. I would recommend if you take kratom, uh, then brew a tea with hot water because that will eliminate quite a few of these uh, bacteria. Um, so instead of making it with orange juice, for example, where you don't necessarily cook uh, the powder, where yeah. it's not heated to higher temperatures, make it with, with hot water first. Yeah, I was actually had that question written down to ask. I'm trying to get people to drink tea instead of uh, just swallowing it because it's yeah. just it just tastes better like that anyway. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, would, you know, testing and labeling requirements by companies – take care of most of these um, toxicities or or would the test be sort of cost prohibitive and make uh, you know the kratom costs far more than than what the risks involve so it would certainly make the products uh, on average more expensive yeah uh, that is something that uh, I think is is something that we need to consider in the interest of safety Um how how much is safety worth to to us as the consumer? Um, and I, I I would argue that it is definitely worth paying more. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not uh, I'm not a, a kratom consumer. I have actually never consumed it, so <laughs> uh, uh, I, I cannot speak to it. And I also realize that compared to some other products, that kratom is actually fairly expensive as it is already. Mm -hmm. um, I hope, though, that the market can find a good balance once it has kind of adjusted to some of these changes, um, because I think it is important to provide consumers with a product they can trust, yeah. uh, that they that it has the quality, um, and that eventually the FDA uh, can implement um, just a this basically that kratom products can be marketed with the same fda requirements which include quality and labeling as uh, is now basically being implemented by certain states mm -hmm. so 
it's not that the FDA cannot implement uh, oversight on Kraton products as dietary supplements if they would allow it to be grandfathered in under the DSHEA, under the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. Um, you worked on a uh, paper called Public Perceptions Toward Kratom Use in Malaysia. How do public perceptions of Kratom consumers differ in like Southeast Asia in general and the West? And does this public perception lead to bad or good drug policy in general? That's a, that's a great question. So, um, Kratom is used in a, so Kratom has been traditionally used quite frequently and is still quite frequently used, um, uh, in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, um, by, uh, by by folks that just basically have a kratom tree in their backyard and they pick the leaves off and uh, use it either to to just chew on a leaf and you know kind of stay awake or mm. to increase their stamina when they are day laborers or they buy kratom tea in little bags um, from a from a local vendor um uh, to self treat pain or uh primarily pain um after a hard day's work so it is used by um more of a rural um rural inhabitants um uh, not necessarily on, in large cities i would say mm -hmm. um but it is seen as a traditional drug that is tolerated yeah. um there and it's it is not seen as a bad habit mm -hmm. certainly nothing like uh, an opioid or like amphetamine which is a large problem in malaysia as well and in mm -hmm. thailand um so it is it's definitely distinct from that because it has such a long use history the reason that it was uh, banned, uh, but is still kind of tolerated is because it has, uh, to my knowledge, in, uh, kind of interfered with the um, opioid opium uh, business uh, that has grown in Malaysia in uh, the 1960s and 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that kind of uh, led to its to its ban, but even that is now being reconsidered. Um, so there have been some, uh, at least for medical uses, uh, kratom may be uh, maybe made available again, uh, or maybe used by uh, by folks in Malaysia again and and in Thailand, Thailand as well. Um, in in the West, I think what. What was really surprising to me is to see the 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 average kratom user when we look at the uh, demographics is is not like uh, a, a, an opioid or illicit uh, opioid user like a heroin uh, user or uh, like a, an illicit drug user in general, in terms of um, their age range, they tend to be middle-aged, mm -hmm. they tend to be uh, employed, they tend to be married, they tend to be, um, uh, uh, they tend to have a middle-class income, they tend to have health insurance. These are not necessarily, this is not the profile of an illicit drug user yeah. um, that, that we usually see. Um, so there is a, it's definitely a distinction uh, for Kratom users in the United States. Um, and and the, it's primarily still used in the self-treatment of acute and chronic pain and mental and emotional conditions. 
so it, its use is not and primarily focused on um, as, as not even focused on mitigation strategy. It is used for that purpose. I'm not uh, I'm not saying it's not, but it's not the primary use. More people are using it for acute and chronic uh, pain and for an emotional or uh, uh, or a mental condition such mm -hmm. as depression, anxiety, as I mentioned. So I, I see it used in, in a very different manner from a, a recreational drug in, in the West. Yeah, and I mean, it seems as though like when you Google Kratom for the first time, it, it, it's uh, in the news, it's sort of categorized as uh, like uh, bath salts or uh, spice or whatever some of these new chemical drugs were a few years ago. Um, do you think uh, that perception might, you can get around that since it doesn't seem to reflect uh, the reality of, of why people are using Kratom? So um, I, I think when we look at, at spice, at synthetic cannabinoids, or we look yeah. at the, uh, the pyrovalerones, the, the bath salts, um, I, I have yet to find somebody who is using those for a medical condition. Um, yeah. I, I have not found anybody who is telling me um, uh, now, uh, granted, I haven't necessarily looked for them, but uh, I haven't heard anybody use those to treat a uh, a, a really medical condition. Yeah. Um, so, uh, no, I don't think that you can. It is really like apples and oranges, or yeah. not even fruit. Uh, it's more like a salad and you know a candy bar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you want to treat kratom as, as a salad and um, the other one as a candy bar, yeah. um, so um, no, uh, you you. I, I think what what we see in in media, uh, at least in in like kind of the clickbait media, is. Uh -huh. um, they want to jump on a on a headline and and draw folks in uh, because it is sensationalized. Yeah. Um. And and we see that in all parts of our daily life. You know, when it's a headline and it's sensational, it it draws you in. Uh. But once you actually question it, when you think critically about it, um. And you 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 know, you do some research on your own and actually look in the scientific literature, uh, you see the distinction. And I know that sometimes policy is influenced by public perception, uh, but what I found uh, astonishing about public perception when it comes to Kratom is that um, I, I don't think that the public is necessarily all that um that that it's not really a one-sided issue for kratom in the public um i think that people realize that kratom is not like a bath salt and it's not like the spice or it's not like k2 spice or whatever yeah. you want to call it um i think people realize that mm -hmm. uh and and i've had I've, I've had like community engagements where I'm located, where I talk to folks in the community who wanted to know more about it. I had uh, engagements with healthcare professionals who wanted to know more about it. And either they didn't know before about Kratom or uh, they had heard about it, but they didn't really have an opinion yet. Yeah. But uh, once we got into uh, the topic and I, you know, we had like a Q&A going back and forth, it became very obvious that uh, they understood relatively quickly what the applications and what it, what its uses were. Um, and I like, like I said here, I'm not treating it as an innocuous, uh, completely free of any adverse effects mm -hmm. uh, substance or, you know, uh, it's not. Uh, so I, I, I tell people what I think about it uh, very openly and then let them make their own decisions. 
Uh, well, thank you first, Brian, and, yeah. and to all of you listeners, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, and I I hope that uh, uh, that Kratom uh, remains available as a as a safe, uh, as we had discussed, as as a safe and, and high quality product. And I really encourage everybody who is currently using Kratom to seek out vendors that actually label their products accordingly. Uh, that's really something that I would encourage everybody to do. Um, uh, and, and, and ask their vendors to actually label them, uh, to put a little bit of pressure on, on them to do that. Um, uh, there are a few studies that might be coming out, uh, or that are currently in the works. Um, most of them are obviously preclinical. Um, we, we don't have any human studies at the moment, yeah. uh, but there is a lot of movement um, when it comes to uh, clinical studies. So we are trying as a community, and that's the good thing about uh, the Kratom research community, we're not competing with one another. We really are working together and there's a lot of collaboration going on um, in, in trying to find out the pharmacology and the toxicology uh, of Kratom to, uh, to serve uh, consumers and, and move things forward on the regulatory front as well. That was awesome. I'm so grateful for Dr. Oliver Grumman for getting to have that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. The music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.